Good morning. So, we just recited Master Hawkwind's chant. He says, Upholding the precepts, repentance and giving, the countless good deeds and the way of right living all come from Zazen. Of course, Zazen is our sitting practice. Um, So, this whole business of upholding the precepts has been on my mind because um, where I trained traditionally about this time of year, we would take the precepts in the ceremony. And so I wanted to get into the precepts a little bit today. There's an old story from China um, about a Zen master who was nicknamed Bird Nest Roshi. Bird Nest Roshi. Uh, who is a Tang Dynasty master. And he was nicknamed Bird Nest Roshi because he would often do zazen. He would meditate up in a tree uh, over a precarious cliff to keep his mind concentrated. That's one way to do it, huh? Anyway, any of you struggling with concentration might try this. Uh, probably not good for your insurance policy, though. So one day he was up in the tree and a student of his who was the governor of the province where he lived named uh, Bai Chui, that was the name of the governor, Bai Chui. Um, Not only was he a governor, but he was also a very famous Zen poet. And so he came to see Bird Nest Roshi and he called up to him in the tree and he said, you look pretty insecure up there. And Bird Nest Roshi looked down at him and said, well, you look pretty insecure down there. He said, all things are under the law of change, especially in the world of politics. Well, the governor knew that that was true, so he asked Bird Nest Roshi, well, what can you say about the Buddha's um, teaching? And Bird Nest Roshi replied, always do good, never do evil, and cultivate your mind. He said, all the Buddhas have taught this. And um, Bai Chui said, always do good, never do evil, and cultivate your mind. I knew this when I was three years old. And, and, and Burdness Roshi said, yeah, a three-year-old child might know it, but an 80-year-old man can't put it into practice. This is really fitting, isn't it, given what we're going through as a country. How many men have have not learned this as we're seeing uh, in the media? The basics about how to act. That that is is surprisingly, um, well, not so surprisingly, but uh, it's all coming kind of to the front, to the forefront in, um, in the media now. How many people have transgressed in even the most basic ways. So... Um, the precepts 
are based in what bird nest Roshi said. Always do good, never do evil, and cultivate your mind. The Buddhist precepts are the moral guidelines. And they're outlined by the Buddha's, uh, Buddhist teachings. Um, and you could say that they're foundational to Buddhist practice. Um, there are what you can call three legs of Buddhist practice, or three essentials. Morality, uh, meditation, and wisdom. Ethics, or morality, wisdom, or prajna, insight, and zazen, meditation. Each of these three um, is associated with the Eightfold Path. So, for example, wisdom is associated with the first two parts of the Eightfold Path, which are, anybody know these off the top of your head? Quiz time? No? Well, the first two parts of the Eightfold Noble Path. Right view and right thought. Morality that is associated with the next three, which is right speech, right action, and right livelihood. And the last two are associated, or three, are associated with meditation, which is right concentration, right effort, and right mindfulness. So together, they make up the Eightfold Path. And of course, while those are kind of traditionally categorized that way, you could say that we shouldn't get too attached to those categories because obviously they're all overlapping and interpenetrating at the same time. So the precepts are delineations of Buddhist morality or what's in Sanskrit called shila. And you could say that practicing Buddhism without practicing the precepts isn't Buddhism at all. Robert Aiken Roshi once said, without the precepts as guidelines, Zen Buddhism becomes, uh, tends to become a hobby made to fit the needs of the ego. He goes on, he says, selflessness as taught in the Zen Center conflicts with the indulgent indulgence that is encouraged by society. The student is drawn back and forth from outside to within the Zen center, tending to use the center as a sanctuary from the difficulties experienced in the world. He says, in my view, the true Zen Buddhist center is not merely sanctuary, but a source from which ethically motivated people move outward to engage in the larger community. I thought this was also an important topic because there have been a number of teachers in both the Zen and other Buddhist traditions in America that have violated quite seriously the Buddhist precepts. So um, you could say that the precepts in Zazen, sitting meditation, support each other. Without one, the other one remains unfulfilled. Kaplo Roshi um, 
once said, the strongest resolution to keep the precepts will be, at best, only sporadically successful if it's not supported by meditation. And meditation divorced from a disciplined life in the precepts will be weak and uncertain. And I think that's, you can, if you, if you think about it for a minute, there's a real uh, logic in that statement. Because when we sit, if our mind is, is agitated by living in a way that we know is not in line with our values, it's not in line with who we know ourselves to be, if we're sitting with a guilty conscience, for example, <coughs> it's going to be very difficult to quiet the mind. And we could also say that um, if, our, if we're simply trying to live an upright life without being grounded in sitting, then we're going to get uh, easily thrown off. We're going to get easily burned out. You see this among activists quite a bit, where they're you know, really putting all their life energy into heading into very in, um, important social issues and ethical issues, and yet they burn out because they're not grounded in a practice that keeps them centered. And those efforts can sometimes become misguided. Um, people become attached to morality, become attached to the way things ought to be. You know, no, it has to be this way. And so Zazen teaches us to stay grounded but flexible in our approach. Because the precepts are anything but rules and regulations. They're not imposed on us. And certainly upholding the precepts, there is a lot of gray area. One thing we should be careful about when we begin to study the moral teachings is imposing a Western moral framework onto the precepts. It's very tempting because most of us were raised in Judeo-Christian uh, settings. I mean, that's what our country is. So, and that you could see that is as really being attached to this idea of good versus evil, the good guys versus the bad guys, right? And this is sort of where a lot of Western morality arises from this Abrahamic tradition. So, um, I think. Buddhist ethics does have an element, certainly, of good and evil, but that's not the whole of it. Evil, so to speak, from a Buddhist perspective, arises out of delusion. And whether we're talking about delusion from a more relative sense, like, well, you know, we act in an unhelpful way because we misunderstood what somebody meant or said, or we more fundamentally are deluded because of this notion of self and other. That breaking the precepts really arises out of a sense of ignorance or delusion. While 
awakening is the embodiment of the precepts. So if somebody was truly in touch with their full potential, their full, if they were living in awakened state, they would naturally embody the precepts. They would naturally act, speak, and think in ways that were in line with the precepts. And, but most of us actually, most of us would concede that we're far from that. We're far from that full awakened state. And so we're going to screw up. We're going to constantly fail in our attempts. But if we don't try to work against the grain of our habit energy, of our of our delusion, then we are fooling ourselves. So a Buddhist morality and practice, practicing the precepts are um, a reflection of interdependence. That's where they come from, the teaching of interdependence, which is also called uh, many other things. I've heard it referred to as dependent co-arising, or codependent origination. So there's all these terms for this interdependence. And I've used the image here before of the net of Indra. Do you remember that? The net of Indra. Uh, the, this net, if you imagine a net that is strung across the whole universe. And at each intersection of the netting, there's a jewel. And that jewel reflects every other jewel. And so the jewels it's themselves are created by the reflection, in a sense, by the other jewels. So in this way, the precepts are a reflection of our deepest nature. They are our deepest nature. We are a reflection of everything and everybody. So if you take away, this is sort of classic teaching of dependent co-arising. If you take away me, you've ceased to exist. If I take away you, I cease to exist. It's like two sheaves of wheat that lean against each other. Their existence only is because of each other. Take away one, the other one falls. So this is where the spirit of the precepts comes from. Um, they also, I was tempted to put up Quan Yin on the altar this morning, uh, but I, I didn't, um, because the spirit of the precepts also comes out of the bodhisattvic ideal. And um, just to, as a reminder, people know, but uh, the bodhisattva is, is means, a bodhisattva means an enlightenment being. And an enlightenment being is someone who is working towards the benefit of all beings. So it, more classically, it's that they are putting off their own full potential to help others. So it's like 
you know, there's a fire in the building and you're helping everybody get out before yourself, before you sell. So you don't run for the door trampling over everybody like we've seen these videos, right, of Black Friday where people are just run over by this mob. Robert Aiken said that a bodhisattva is at the same time enlightened, on the path to enlightenment, and enlightening others. So they're enlightened, on the path to enlightenment, and enlightening others. And that can sound pretty paradoxical. How can you be on the path to enlightenment, but also already be fully enlightened? It's a good question. So, in traditional Zen training, the precepts are taken in a ceremony, which we call Jukai. And Jukai, uh, Ju means to receive, and Kai means the precepts in Japanese. And this spring, I'm hoping that we'll have our first precept ceremony um, since um, my coming here. And I want to invite everybody to take a part of that if you would find it useful. Especially with the coming of the new year, I think focusing on renewal and recommitment is um, around the precepts is particularly powerful. And in our tradition, the Jukai ceremony is the closest thing we have to becoming a Buddhist. It's kind of an initiation ceremony. Um, it's it's also a time when people uh, will, beforehand, will sew these. This is called a raksu. And a raksu is an abbreviated robe um, that both monks, priests, and lay people wear. And um, these are came out of China when, at some point in Chinese history, there was an emperor who persecuted Buddhists and made all the monks and nuns go back to work. Uh, they worked anyway, but they made them take off their robes and go back and, and live uh, lay life. And so what they did was sew these abbreviated robes, and then they tucked them underneath their normal clothing and kept them close as a reminder of their vows. And so in our tradition, um, once you study the precepts for a certain period of time, um, you're able to, to either buy or sew one of these, preferably sew it, um, and and then receive it in a ceremony where you get a Buddhist name and also uh, a lineage chart. And it, it's not ordination, but it's um, kind of a lay uh, a lay uh, investiture. So, so. In, um, in addition to doing the Jukai ceremony, um, this, is, this is sort of more educational stuff, but I thought it's worth kind of putting out there for people. In addition to doing the Jukai ceremony, in our tradition, at the end of formal koan practice, once you've gone through all of the koans, they, at the very end of one's training, you work on the 16 precepts as koans with a teacher. So you take them up in doksan together, and you sit with each one, and there are different koans that are, correspond to each precept, really looking in depth at each precept 
And when I say in depth, what I mean is you look at them from different perspectives. Uh, you look at, for example, you look at them from the Hinayana, which is more the literal interpretation of each precept. You look at them from the Mahayana, which is the greatest good for the greatest number kind of perspective. You look at them from the absolute perspective and also from Bodhidharma's and Dogen's perspectives because they each wrote extensively on the precepts. And so those are worked at at the end of one's training. So before any going any further, let's read the precepts. Um, they're actually in the chant book. If you turn to page 42, you'll see them. So in our tradition, we have 16. We have the three treasures, and actually we'll be starting to institute that chant here, um, which is a daily chant. And the three treasures, or three refuges as they're called also, are I take refuge in Buddha, I take refuge in Dharma, and I take refuge in Sangha. And so taking refuge in Buddha means um, going for um, refuge in the awakened mind. And also in the teachings of Shakyamuni. And then taking refuge in Dharma means the refuge in the teachings. The Dharma means uh, the teachings. And the last one, taking refuge in Sangha, means the community, the community of practitioners. So taking refuge in Buddha, Dharma, Sangha are the sort of the umbrella that encapsulates uh, um, all of the precepts. And then you have the three general resolutions. They're also called the three pure precepts. I resolve to avoid evil, I resolve to do good, and I resolve to liberate all sentient beings. The, other, the last one is also worded, I, um, I vow to do good for others. So that distinction between doing good and doing good for others. And then the 10 cardinal precepts. Um, I resolve not to kill, but to cherish all life. I resolve not to take what is not given, but to respect the things of others. I resolve not to misuse sexuality, but to be caring and responsible. I resolve not to lie, but to speak the truth. I resolve not to cause others to abuse alcohol or drugs, nor to do, my, do so myself, but to keep the mind clear. I resolve not to speak of the faults of others, but to be understanding and sympathetic. I resolve not to praise myself and disparage others, but to overcome my own shortcomings. Those two are particularly difficult for many of us. Number six and seven. Number eight, I resolve not to withhold spiritual or material aid, but to give them freely where needed. I resolve not to indulge in anger, but to practice forbearance. And I think I gave a talk on that a while ago. And the important part of this is to not mistake that precept for becoming angry. 
It's not, I resolve not to become angry because that would be impossible. Maybe a full Buddha, maybe, <laughs> could not become angry. But if we resolve not to become angry, we really work against our own humanity. And I resolve not to revile the three treasures, but to cherish and uphold them. And again, the three treasures are Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha. So those are all taken in the ceremony. You could say that practicing the precepts is practicing freedom. Um, at first, they can become, they can seem quite restrictive. Like when we look at them from the outside, we can say, oh my gosh, you know, here's, this, here's another set of rules that I have to follow. Um, and in a way, they, I guess you could say they are restrictive in one sense. In, in other words, they help us take a look at our speech and our actions and the way we use our minds. But if we simply see them as restrictive, then we sell them short. Um, when I was thinking about this last night, uh, I remembered this psychologist named Lawrence Kohlberg who outlined six stages that people go through in their moral development. Know, has anybody heard of these things? Remember these things from college? Okay. Um, in the first stage, he said, um, this, is the, this first stage is generally found in elementary school or even pre-elementary school. And, it's, and you could say it's a morality that is there to avoid punishment. Right? We don't want to make mom or dad mad or our teacher mad. So we do what we think is moral to avoid punishment. The second stage or second phase is somewhat similar to the first in that it is characterized by and motivated by self-interest. What's in it for me? In other words, reward. Kind of the flip side of punishment, right? Reward. What's in it for me? If I uphold these rules, what's in it for me? The third stage, he said, as we move into and grow, is a morality based on seeking approval of others. And I think most of us can relate to that. Wanting the approval or not wanting the disapproval of others. The fourth is based on a morality of laws and duty. And you can also see this in kids as they grow up. They get very attached. This is how it's got to be. This is the law. This is the rule. This is what I've been told. right? And I think, again, all of us go through these as well um, in, in our adult life. And number five is the stage when we begin to develop an interest, a genuine interest in other people, a genuine concern for other people the welfare of others. And so our morality then becomes um, something that comes from within us rather than something that's imposed on us. And then the sixth stage is somewhat hard to understand, but it's when we begin to think abstractly and consider 
um, things more flexibly in our morality. It takes into consideration the complexity and often conflicting interests in ethical issues. So it's not black and white. And so again, you can say that we all move back and forth from these stages. Sometimes we're motivated and we simply think of something as, this is the rule, this is what I gotta do. And sometimes we worried about what other, we do things because we're worried about what other things people think about us. And sometimes it's just genuinely out of compassion. But if we simply overlay our upbringing on, or our conditioning on the precepts, we're bound to see them as restrictive and act from those earlier stages of moral development. I have to do this, I have to do that. Um, and they can become bound up with guilt and shame and all kinds of things. Um, we begin to take a tally of how we're doing or how somebody else is doing, somebody's watching me and all of this stuff, right? So, of course, if we see the precepts that way, then they become something that we wouldn't want to, you know, work on. Um, I have found that it's helpful to think of the precepts as a practice. Um, it's like the practice of meditation. On one level, we practice Zen knowing that there's nothing to get. This is the Soto understanding of the teaching. There is absolutely nothing to get from meditation. Why? Because we're already whole. There's nothing to get. Right here, right now, you're already Buddha. You're already complete. In this way, when we practice the precepts, you could say there's no way to break them. That's the absolute side. There's no way to break the precepts because they're always being manifested. And yet on the other side of practice, just like in our meditation, it's a constant recognition or returning to the present moment. Like with the breath practice, when we've noticed we go off or the koan, we notice we've left the practice, we catch ourselves and we return to the practice over and over again. This lifelong returning over and over again. Getting used to starting over. And practicing the precepts in this way is about noticing, okay, I, I screwed up. All right. I don't need to get bound up in shame and guilt. I just return. Just return over and over again. I'm going to try again. Start over. And this is why we take them in a ceremony. Um, we take them in a ceremony together because we recognize that we're all screwing up constantly. And we all can hit the reset button constantly. And so saying them out loud with others is particularly powerful. Some people say, well, you know, what do I need the ceremony for? It's ridiculous. I, you know, it's... Eh, I live them anyway, so why do I have to do it? Well, say, well, why do you get married? Well, you have a relationship anyway, right? So it's not about 
the ceremony. It's about a recognition of what's already inside of you that we're already trying to practice. But there's something very powerful about saying these things out loud together. There's something very powerful about really connecting with others and doing them together out loud. So I want to encourage all of you to seriously think about taking them if, if you feel like you're ready. Um, so I want to end with a quote from John Daito Lori Roshi. He said, the precepts contain the totality of the teachings of the Buddha Dharma. This is not immediately apparent, and it may take us 10 to 20 years of practice before we really see it and actualize it in our lives. But it's all there, totally engaged and thoroughly appreciated. The precepts continue to be a bottomless source of wisdom helping us embrace our hu a full human potential, or Buddha nature. These precepts are the most complete and far-reaching facet of the Dharma I could possibly share. People inquire about practice. What is lay practice? Kai, the precepts. What is monastic practice? Kai, the precepts. What is home practice? Kai, the precepts. What is the sacred? Kai. What is the secular? Kai. Everything we see, touch, and do, our way of relating, is right here in these precepts. They are the Buddha way, the heart of the Buddha. Isn't that nice? I really like that.